This is uh, page K theory one, unit five, part two, ventilation versus oxygenation. This is um, this is one of my favorite subjects, and uh, it's it's a little painful because there are uh, quite a few concepts here that um, I'm just going to dim lights a little bit. There's a few concepts here that you're going to need to digest, and you'll want to spend some time. Uh, reviewing your notes and reviewing the podcast on this particular lesson because uh, it's so critically important. Um, so uh, what does oxygen versus ventilation mean to you? Let me ask you that question. <coughs> Just not a complicated answer yet. Aaron? How well they're breathing versus how much oxygen they're getting? Yeah, or if you're mechanically ventilating, how well you're ventilating versus how much oxygen we're getting, right? So they're two separate things. And um, <coughs> unfortunately, uh, sometimes we think of them as uh, synonymous and they're, they're related, but not synonymous. And um, um, I'll tell you um, the ways in which some medics forget that they are two separate things. Um, number one, when uh, paramedics, and this applies to nurses and physicians too, when they encounter a patient who's hypoxic and uh, they're resuscitating them, oftentimes they overzealously ventilate them, thinking that uh, ventilating them is, is uh, correcting their hypoxia. But in reality, the thing that corrects the hypoxia is the oxygen component. <coughs> um, under the advanced care paramedic protocol for intubation, putting a tube in the trachea, um, the first step they recommend is to hyper-oxygenate the patient. And um, I know some medics to this day still think that means bagging the hell out of them, uh, but it's not. It means just ventilating them at a normal rate and volume, but adding oxygen to the BVM, which we typically always do, and uh, giving a high liter flow. So there are two distinct processes, but interrelated in some ways that I'll explain. And, um, but first we need to have a basic understanding of really, really basic blood gases first. So um, let's talk about pH, which is essentially the measure of hydrogen ions or acidity, um, oxygen content and carbon dioxide. So th those are three parameters that we're interested in. And blood gases are typically drawn from an arterial blood sample, usually at the, the radial pulse. And, uh, but you can do venous blood gases. They're interpreted a little bit differently. And uh, they look like this. So normal pH is 7.35 to 7.45. Less than 7.35 would be acidotic. Greater than 7.45 would be alkalotic, right? PaO2, which is the partial pressure of oxygen dissolved in arterial blood plasma, is typically 80 to 100 millimeters of mercury. 80 to 100. And PaCO2, which is the partial pressure of carbon dioxide dissolved in arterial blood plasma, is normally between 35 and 45. So if someone hyperventilates, what do you think happens to their CO2? It goes down, actually, it decreases. Yeah, you, if you hyperventilate, you blow off CO2. Right? If you hyperventilate, you blow off CO2. And CO2 is part of the carbonic acid buffer equation, which means essentially you're blowing off acids. 
So people who are acidotic typically breathe faster and deeper. If you've ever met a patient who's a hemodialysis patient, they, chronically, uh, they are chronically acidotic or oftentimes chronically acidotic. So they breathe faster and deeper than most of us. COPDers will breathe faster and deeper than most of us because right? they're CO2 retainers. Okay, so, uh, so I already talked about this. We don't need to go over this a second time. Uh, but here's the important concept. Uh, when we're <coughs> administering supplemental O2, we're increasing the PaO2. Uh, when we're bag valve mass ventilating someone, we're either maintaining their CO2 at normal levels or if we overventilate them, we're blowing off CO2. It's, it's that simple. Um, now, what if you ventilated someone using just atmospheric air? Uh, well, um, let's get to that. So uh, let's say we had an unconscious person here um, who was, has normal lungs and uh, no underlying conditions. Maybe they've had a massive stroke and I'm ventilating them, but I'm off duty and I don't have oxygen. So I'm just bag valve mass ventilating them. So what'll happen is, um, if, if I ventilate them at 16 breaths per minute with a normal tidal volume, their CO2 and their PaO2, if I could somehow magically measure them, would probably stay within normal limits. But if I hyperventilated them, started ventilating them at 24 or 32 breaths per minute, um, what would happen is I blow off CO2 and the CO2 would decrease, but I probably have minimal effect on the PaO2 the PaO2 might climb to the upper range of 100 millimeters of mercury, but it's likely gonna stay in the 80 to 100. And if it goes above, it's only gonna be slightly, right? Because I'm still giving them 21% oxygen, still giving them atmospheric oxygen. But what I'm doing is I'm blowing off CO2 more than I should be <coughs> and giving them atmospheric oxygen. Now, the minute I take an oxygen source and plug it into the BVM, now you're gonna see their PaO2s <coughs> rise. And, um, if you've got good lung compliance, you know, nothing interfering with air movement down to the gas exchanging areas. Um, when you um, hyperoxygenate your patient, what'll happen is um, their PAO2s will climb to, you know, uh, 200, 300, maybe even 400. They usually top out under 500 if you're hyperoxygenating your patient. So you can hyperoxygenate your patient by just giving them a non-rebreather mask or by bag valve mask ventilation um, and their PaO2s will climb. If you hyperventilate them, their CO2s will drop. If you hypoventilate a patient, their CO2s uh, will climb, they'll increase. So um, exception to this rule would be you guys find an unconscious guy in the bathroom and you carry him into the classroom here and say, Rob, Rob, save this guy. And uh, it's an unrealistic scenario, obviously, but, uh, and my first question would be, did someone call 911? 
so you're calling 911, and I've got a BVM with this heroin overdose here. So this heroin overdose is breathing at six breaths per minute, and his breaths are shallow. Where do you think his CO2s are going to be, low, high, or normal? They're going to be high. Yeah, they're going to be high, right? So he's going to have a high CO2. And I've got a bag valve mask with no oxygen. Um, and where do you think his PaO2 is going to be? It's going to be low. That's right. So CO2 is going to be high because he's not breathing adequately. He's not blowing off CO2. And PO2 is going to be really low. So he's going to be hypoxic and hypercapneic. So high CO2, hypercapnia. Um, so with just a bag valve mask and no oxygen, I'm going to start to ventilate this guy. And I'll probably ventilate him at about 20 breaths per minute. So a little higher than normal. I'm going to squeeze just to see his chest rise. And if we could magically see his arterial blood gases, uh, what we would see is his CO2 coming down and we'd see his PaO2 coming up. So this is the one exception where, despite the fact we don't have a sup uh, um, supplemental oxygen supply, just ventilating the guy is gonna raise his PaO2 up because it was really low because he's a heroin overdose and he's breathing at six breaths per minute. <clears throat> and just increasing his ventilation rate and volume and increasing the surface area across which oxygen can diffuse will elevate his PaO2, in addition to bringing down his CO2. Are you with me? Okay. Yeah. If you can wrap that around your head and uh, understand how that works, uh, you will be in the top 10 percentile of paramedics. It's not a difficult concept, but um, you got to know it when you're in the field and you're resuscitating people and know that hyperventilating the patient who shouldn't be hyperventilated can be harmful. Hyper or hypooxygenating the patient who shouldn't be hypo or hyperoxygenated can also be bad or can be good, depending on the circumstance, right? So oxygen is a drug. It's called an atmospheric, atmospheric oxygen is considered a drug or medical oxygen is considered a drug. It's just concentrated um, atmospheric oxygen. And uh, drugs have a therapeutic range and they have a toxic range. Too much oxygen, not good for people. Uh, we want to talk more quackery. Go to an oxygen bar, total quackery. There's no benefit to inhaling oxygen. It doesn't cure um, uh, hangovers. Um, it's not beneficial. And uh, um, the human body has evolved to function under atmospheric oxygen of 21% and atmospheric pressure of 760 millimeters of mercury. Um, and that's how we function. You give people more oxygen and it creates oxygen-free radicals, which damages cells. Oxygen-free radicals are bad for heart attacks. They're bad for strokes. And so for years, decades, we've been hyperoxygenating patients who we never should have been hyperoxygenating. And it's only actually been the last 10 years or so that we started to back off. If I transport a patient who's having a heart attack, I don't give them any oxygen unless their SpO2 is below, you know, 94% or 93%. Um, so we know oxygen is now bad, right? It increases myocardial damage, increases brain damage in stroke patients. Um, it's no longer a good thing. So no one should just get oxygen because, oh, oxygen is good. It's fresh air. You know, 
let's go to an oxygen bar and suck back more oxygen like aliens you know uh, it's not good but it's amazing how gullible we are it's unbelievable really so um, if anything sounds like it's too good to be true research it uh, and you'll discover it's probably too good to be true <coughs> now hyperoxygen can be good for things like uh, wounds that don't heal you know they'll put diabetics uh, with with wheels uh, wounds that don't heal into hyperbaric chambers where they hyperoxygenate the tissue and sometimes that can be beneficial so it all depends on the condition and circumstance all right so question which blood gas component do you believe is most affected by artificial ventilation uh, b paco2 good oops what happened there ah rawr, rawr. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened there. Too much. Too much. Okay, so ventilation versus oxygen. I've really already talked about this, um, so I don't think we need to go over the slide, but you can just read it for a review. <coughs> um, this is the painful part, the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And it's not that painful, actually, but <coughs> when... Um, Sometimes when I bring up the term ox oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, people go into cerebral overload, and there's like a little implosion in within the skull. So uh, it's not that complicated. But uh, uh, so the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve describes the relationship between the PaO2 and the SaO2. So SaO2 means the oxygen saturation measured in blood plasma, but an SpO2 is an approximation of the SaO2. So the probe that you put on a finger is an approximation of what you should be able to measure in the blood, right? The blood would be most accurate, but we use an SpO2, which is a remarkable device. So if you look at the curve, um, on the oxygen saturation side on the left, the vertical curve, you can only go as high as 100%, right? You can only saturate to 100%. You can't uh, saturate above that. Um, on the PaO2 side, uh, PaO2, you know, might be 80 to 100 normally, but can go upwards of 200, 300, 400, even higher if you put someone in a hyperbaric chamber. And um, the oxyhemoglobin dissociation shifts to the right uh, and upward, or to the left and upwards, or to the right and downwards, um, under conditions that affect hemoglobins grab or grasp on oxygen. So in an alkalotic environment, it shifts up to the left where oxygen uh, binds to hemoglobin but doesn't release as easily at the tissue. On the opposite side, if you're acidotic, you don't pick up oxygen at the hemoglobin, at the lung level as easily and you don't, it doesn't bind as well to hemoglobin but it releases easily at the tissues. So if, um, if you've got a patient who's cardiac arrest, right? Their heart stopped beating, they've stopped breathing, someone calls 911, nobody does CPR, you arrive 10 minutes later, that patient is going to be acidotic. They're gonna be, they're gonna be anoxic, they're gonna be um, um, you know, under anaerobic metabolism, they're gonna be producing lactate and pyruvate and other acids, and um, they're gonna be a lactic acidosis. And so what that means is, when you ventilate them and oxygenate them, you're not gonna get hemoglobin grabbing onto oxygen as easily 
but that's okay because you're gonna add supplemental oxygen and you're gonna hyperoxygenate them. You're not gonna hyperventilate them, but you're gonna hyperoxygenate them. And so whatever <coughs> oxygen doesn't get bound to hemoglobin <coughs> will dissolve in blood plasma and will hopefully get utilized at the tissue level. Right, we're going to start CPR, provide a f artificial circulation, and CPR, really good CPR, will give you the equivalent of about 35% of what normal cardiac output would be, which is not bad. And being in an acidotic state when you're dead is not necessarily a bad thing. And let me explain. So back in the 70s, when there was a show Emergency with Johnny and Roy, the routine practice for cardiac arrest then was was the, the hypothesis was, well, if you're in cardiac arrest, you're acidotic, so we should treat all these acidotic cardiac arrest patients with a buffer, and that buffer was sodium bicarbonate. It's an amp of sodium bicarbonate, which is a 50 mil equivalent of sodium bicarbonate, and it's a buffer. It alkalinizes the blood, and the thought was, it made intuitive sense, if they're acidotic, let's try to bring their pH back to normal. So every cardiac arrest patient got an amp of bicarb. Well, what they realized in the late 70s, early 80s, or mid 80s, was that um, some of these cardiac arrest patients who got an amp of bicarb um, were fresh cardiac arrest and they weren't that acidotic. And when you give an amp a bicarb, you shifted the blood pH to the alkaline side, which meant that uh, hemoglobin couldn't release oxygen at the tissue level. So they stopped giving amps of bicarb for every cardiac arrest. And now we're very selective about, so advanced care paramedics carry sodium bicarb. They're very selective about who gets sodium bicarbonate. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we had a guy who, <coughs> who was cycling with some friends, mountain biking, and he um, collapsed on his bike, was in cardiac arrest. We started the resuscitation. We initiated transport. I contacted my base hospital doc and said, we've been running the arrest now for 45 minutes. We're about 10 to 15 minutes out from the hospital. What would you like us to do? And the doc said, give him an amp of bicarb. Because he'd been in cardiac arrest now almost an hour. And he's probably quite profoundly acidotic. And uh, no harm and some potential benefit to giving him an alkaline solution at that point. But not early on in the arrest. So. Um, acidosis is not necessarily a bad thing. It's um, in terms of um, hemoglobin and oxygen, because if, if hemoglobin doesn't grab onto oxygen as readily at the level of the lungs, let's just hyperoxygenate them. Give them a non-rebreather mask, BVMM with 100% O2, let's just flood the guy with oxygen. So on the left side, hypothermia. Um, uh, shifts the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the left, as does hypocapnia, so blowing off too much CO2. And 2,3-DPG diphosphoglycerate is, a, uh, is an enzyme uh, that sort of cleaves off oxygen from the hemoglobin, sort of breaks it off and allows the oxygen to dissolve in blood plasma and utilize at the tissue. So if there's a decrease in 2,3-DPG and our 2,3-DPG levels go down with age, it sucks getting older. Like everything just, you know, Things fall off, organs deteriorate, it's just not good. <laughs> so we had a, de a decrease in 2,3-DPG. Um, on, the, on the other side, on the, the right sh shift side, acidosis um, decreases the uh, affinity of uh, hemoglobin to oxygen, um, as does hyperthermia, as does hypercapnia, so high CO2, uh, or an increase in 2,3-DPG. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what would cause an increase in 2,3-DPG, but uh, uh, 
Yeah, so that's the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Now, one of the most important things about the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve from a clinical standpoint is this. <coughs> so, you are giving a patient who's sick, let's say they're, you know what's going on here? Urgh. Pen, ink color. Let's go green. So you're giving a patient. Oh, it's not working. That's weird. I think you were on laser pointer. No, I was on. Uh, I was on pen. Honest. Watch pointer option. Oh. Pen. See. Ink color. My favorite color, green, and still not working. Okay. So let's just talk about it then. So, um, uh, you've got a patient who's in respiratory distress. Let's say they're mild to moderate respiratory distress. They're awake, they're talking, but they're struggling to breathe. Maybe they're asthmatic or they're emphysemic or they have heart failure and a little bit of fluid in their lungs. They're having a little bit of difficulty breathing and you give them oxygen, right? So those patients will have a higher oxygen consumption rate. So you and I, right now, you're consuming about 5%. I'm consuming about 7% because I'm up and walking around, but a patient in respiratory distress might be consuming 23% um, or 28%. So they need supplemental oxygen, right? And you're giving them supplemental oxygen and they are, let me use my arrow. So they're way over here on the PaO2 level. So they're at 200, 300 or something. They're doing okay. And you're transporting the hospital. You're not too worried about them. But if something happens, let's say their condition worsens en route, um, their pulmonary edema becomes worse, their bronchospasm becomes more intense, um, their PaO2 will start to drop, but you won't know it, right? You won't know it. You'll be up at 200, and it'll drop and drop and drop and drop and drop. You won't know it until they hit the slippery slope. This is a term they actually use in medicine. Until they hit the slippery slope of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Right about, you know, say here. Right? Somewhere around a PaO2 of 80 or just below 80. So um, your SpO2 monitor, this little probe on the finger, it's an amazing device. It's amazing, right? If they're saturating at 98% on your supplemental O2, and then you notice that they drop to 96%, that's an early warning sign. That tells you, uh-oh, something's going on here. So what do we do? We go back to the FIC principle, right? We think about you know, is my M tank on? Is my oxygen caught underneath the wheel of the stretcher? Um, the next thing you do is auscultate the chest. You know, has something happened? Is there diminished air entry in one of the lungs now? Or, you know, because of increased bronchospasm and mucus plugging? Is, there, is the pulmonary edema worse? You know, have they gone from the sounds of crackles from fluid going through fluids to really loud crackles? Um, so those are usually the first things, the first two things you do. Check your FiO2 and check uh, the lungs. Right? So the pulse oximeter is a great early warning device. Phenomenal. In the old days, we didn't have pulse oximeters. So you can imagine how I almost wet my pants with excitement when we got a pulse oximeter for the first time. It was like, like, how does this thing do what it does? It's amazing. It's truly mind-boggling when you think about it. It was uh, really unbelievable. Um, so 
patients will hit the slippery slope of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, and that's when you know you need to intervene. Maybe you need to increase the um, uh, leader flow rate, um, or you need to uh, administer uh, salbutamol, or if it's a heart failure patient, you need to administer nitroglycerin um, to get their heart failure under control, or you need to put them on a continuous positive airway pressure device. Uh, but you need to assess and intervene. That's the key. Pulse oximeter, great tool. Amazing tool. Where pulse oximetry is not a good tool, carbon monoxide poisoning in fires. Because in fires, in smoke, carbon monoxide grabs onto hemoglobin competitively. It, it has a greater affinity for hemoglobin than oxygen does. And the pulse oximeter cannot distinguish between oxyhemoglobin and carboxyhemoglobin. So it can't distinguish between CO2-bound hemoglobin or oxygen-bound hemoglobin. So you get someone coming out of a fire, smoke inhalation, their oxygen saturation may be 100%. And sometimes you'll forget, uh, like my partner, who was uh, an older guy, and we had a guy who was in a garage fire, and we sat him down, and we put the pulse oximeter on, and my partner said, Hey, Rob, is SATs good? And I said, yeah, carbon monoxide. And he looked at me and said, right. <laughs> so even old guys forget. Old women don't forget, trust me. <laughs> they never forget, ever. <clears throat> old women can tell you what you had for breakfast 30 years ago on a very specific date. All right. So I already talked about this, that, that idea that um, oxygenation affects PaO2, uh, ventilation affects CO2 with exceptions, right? So a patient who's a heroin overdose or some other opioid overdose and they're hypoventilating and by normalizing their <laughs> ventilation or hyperventilating them, we're not only decreasing CO2, but we're improving PaO2. <coughs> Sorry, can you one ventilation effects? So ventilation affects predominantly CO2, right? Blows off CO2, but uh, you know, and oxygenation affects PaO2, but with the exception of certain patients like uh, the opioid overdose who's hypoventilating and hypooxygenating as a consequence, all you have to do is ventilate those patients and their CO2 uh, diminishes and their PaO2 increases, right? You wanna save uh, the life of an opioid overdose? Airway, breathing, that's it. Forget Narcan, just airway breathing. Airway breathing, that's all you need to do. If all first responders just arrived and looked after airway breathing uh, and nothing else, uh, you can get there and give Narcan if they happen to be there before you. That's what should happen. Unfortunately, that's not what's happening right now. Um, okay, let's talk about ventilation to perfusion ratio. So we're talking about air getting down to the alveolus and blood circulating in the pulmonary capillaries. The relationship between those two things. That's called a VQ mismatch. So V is for ventilation and Q is for perfusion. Um, there's a reason why the letter Q is for perfusion. I don't remember what it is, but there's a reason. If, if you wanna be a Cliff Clavin of paramedicine, you can look that up. 
Does anyone know who Cliff Clavin is? Yeah. <laughs> Only Jason. I love it. So, Jason, Jason, you're not that old. 37. Okay, you're old. <laughs> <laughs> In a very young way. <laughs> so Cliff, uh, there's a show called Cheers, an old show called Cheers. You get to watch a rerun. It's it's pretty entertaining. Anyway, there's, uh, it was basically a show that takes place. The entire show takes place in a bar, just friends in a bar who drink right and talk. And uh, Cliff Clavin um, is a guy who's who kind of knows everything. He knows all trivia things, and so. You know, anyone has a question, Cliff Clavin can just explain it ad nauseum. And you know how you get uh, some people who's, who, you know, uh, like Hermione Granger, you know, are insufferable know-it-alls who actually know it all. And then there are insufferable know-it-alls who actually know nothing. Well, he was a guy who, who actually knew everything. Uh, but I think people sometimes doubted his knowledge base until he went on Jeopardy. <laughs> and I think he won Jeopardy or something, I can't remember. but. But uh, they all thought he was just a, one of these guys who was a pain in the ass, but he actually knew stuff. So ventilation to perfusion. Um, uh, so normally, <coughs> there would be a good air entry coming down to the alveolus and good capillary blood flow, and there'll be more or less a match. Like, it's never exactly one-to-one, -one, because the lungs are very complicated, and ventilation and respiration is complicated, but, but more or less one-to-one -one is a VQ match. <coughs> <coughs> Um, and the two VQ mismatches we're going to look at, and they really just fall broadly into two categories, and you can have a combination of these two, is shunting and dead space ventilation. Shunting and dead space ventilation. So what does shunting mean? <coughs> so a shunt is when if, if something interferes with air movement down to the gas exchanging area, that can be a mucus plug, that can be fluid, like a pulmonary edema, that could be bronchospasm, it interferes with air movement down to the gas exchanging area. Um, then what happens is you get something called um, uh, HPV. Which is uh, hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. And the blood is shunted from those alveoli that are not getting adequate air to alveoli that are getting adequate air movement. So that's a shunt. The shunt is actually to do with blood movement. The blood shunts away from um, the areas that are not getting aerated to the alveoli that are getting aerated. That's a shunt. So things that cause a shunt are things like, um, um, Things like pulmonary edema from congestive heart failure, uh, fluid in the lungs from drowning, um, atelectasis or collapsing of the alveoli from being a premature newborn and not having adequate surfactants, um, aspiration of gastric contents. So we see that in older patients who've had uh, strokes like a year ago or something, they're eating their food in the dining room and they inhale some of the food and it gets caught in their, the apices of their lungs, the upper part of their lungs. Um, bronchospasm, mucus plugging, um, all those things uh, may diminish or stop air movement to getting down to certain alveoli and as a consequence the arterioles uh, and the venules on either side constrict and blood gets shunted to other areas. And the blood that's sort of caught in, in this area here 
becomes acidotic. Right? Um, so examples of shunt, a foreign body airway obstruction would be the mother of all shunts. Because right? if you've got an obstruction in your trachea and there's no air getting down to the lung parenchyma, that's a hell of a shunt. <coughs> uh, bronchospasm, mucus plugging, pneumonias, uh, pulmonary edema, hypoventilation would be another form of shunting um, because not all the alveoli are getting air if someone's not breathing deeply enough or at a rate that's reasonable. Um, and we have a positional shunt, right? So right now, um, which part of your lungs do you think is not getting adequate or not adequate. Which part of your lungs, if you could say uh, top of your lungs, bottom of your lungs, middle of your lungs, front of your lungs, back of your lungs, do you think is not getting air into the alveoli? Top. Yeah, top. Because if you wanted air in the alveoli and the apices of your lungs, you'd have to sit there and breathe like this. <gasps> right? You'd have to try to fill those alveoli up there. But right now, you're just breathing out here, right? Your belly's sticking out when you breathe. and it's just down here where you're getting, you're getting aerated, and probably here to some extent and posterior, but not, uh, not up there, right? That's a normal positional shunt. Uh, dead space. <coughs> dead space is when, so it's anatomical dead space and pathological dead space. So anatomical dead space would be air movement through the conducting uh, uh, spaces where there's no gas exchange. So air in the mouth and nose and trachea, there's no alveoli there, right? So air in the mouth, nose, trachea, main, main stem bronchi, secondary bronchi, tertiary bronchi, etc. There's no gas exchange. And in an adult, dead space, anatomical dead space is about 150 mLs, 150 cc's. I might actually test you on this number. So 150 cc's is a typical anatomical dead space in adults. A pathological dead space would be a dead space where air is getting down to the alveolus, but there's no blood flow. And there's no blood flow because there may be a pulmonary embolus, so a clot somewhere in the pulmonary artery or arterial, or multiple clots, or the patient's in a shock state, which is shock is widespread inadequate perfusion, right? Widespread inadequate blood flow perfusion. So if you've got inadequate blood flow to parts of the lung, um, you're going to have pathological dead spaces. Now, most conditions are a combination of shunting and dead space. So emphysemics, uh, they're going to have shunting and dead space. Uh, heart failure and pulmonary edema, they're going to have shunting and dead space. Uh, um, I don't know if there exists such a thing as a pure shunt or a pure dead space. No. Uh, pure dead space might be the pulmonary embolus. That would be a good one. So um, pathological dead space where would be where the blood's blocked. Now, <coughs> there may not be clots in the capillaries, but they're usually clots in the arterioles. Yeah? Sorry, the secondary injury are where the bronchus? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're just branches, right? So you've got a, tr a trachea. It bifurcates into the right and left main stem bronchus. And then coming off the main stem bronchus, there are secondary bronchi. Coming off of those are tertiary bronchi. And coming off of those are just smaller and smaller conducting airways. So, um, so mixed shunt in dead space, for example, in pulmonary edema, there's fluid in the alveolus, 
right? Because what happens is, is if the left side of the heart is failing, if the left side of the heart can't pump uh, what it receives, blood backs up into the left atrium and backs up into the lungs and the lungs become congested, right? The, the, the fluid starts to fill the pulmonary vasculature and those capillaries become sort of engorged and uh, so there's an increase in hydrostatic pressure, which is the pressure exerted by fluid, and that fluid starts to leak, and it leaks out of the capillaries, and it leaks into the interstitial space, so it actually separates the alveoli from the capillaries, and that creates a sort of dead space ventilation. That's why you get a combination of shunt and dead space with uh, pulmonary edema, right. as an example. Uh, this we already talked about. Uh, let's look at how oxygen flows now. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about the Bohr effect in a minute, which is the simplest example of Bohr that you'll ever read in your entire life. But let's talk about flow of oxygen first. So um, how do we get oxygen? Well, we breathe. Um, so oxygen, um, once we breathe it in, oxygen crosses the alveolar capillary membrane, it then dissolves in plasma, and then it binds to hemoglobin. About 90%, 98% of oxygen uh, binds to hemoglobin, about 2% remains dissolved in blood plasma. And then uh, when it gets down to the tissue level, whatever oxygen is in blood plasma diffuses into the tissues, oxygen that's bound to hemoglobin comes off of hemoglobin. Um, do you remember the enzyme that helps shake it off? No, the enzyme that helps shake off O2 from hemoglobin at the tissue yeah. level? Yeah, 2,3-DPG, yeah, 2,3-DPG. <laughs> so um, it comes off of hemoglobin um, partly because of 2,3-DPG, but also because uh, CO2 comes out of, out of um, the tissue and into the blood plasma and shifts the blood pH from alkaline to acidic and hemoglobin loses its grip on oxygen in an acidic environment. So it may not be complete acidosis, but it'll be the lower end of the pH. Um, so O2 comes off of hemoglobin, uh, dissolves in blood plasma, and then diffuses the tissue. It's a really, it's a simple and beautiful process. It's, it's the most uncomplicated, simplified description of what happens that you'll ever read. When you take patho, uh, Sean's gonna go into more depth than that, I'm certain of it, um, you know. He might even talk about things like the Krebs cycle, which you know, causes many cerebral explosions for me. So, uh, so <clears throat> a couple of uh, clinical notes. So pulse oximeter is a measure of O2 bound to hemoglobin. So the percentage of hemoglobin saturated with oxygen molecules and whatever O2 is not bound to hemoglobin gets transported and dissolved in blood plasma. So, so here's a question. Remember I said, uh, what condition would give you a normal SpO2, but that patient should still get supplemental oxygen? What situation would give you a normal SpO2, but that patient desperately needs supplemental oxygen? Yeah, Laura? Carbon monoxide poisoning, exactly, right? Because the pulse oximeter can't distinguish between uh, oxyhemoglobin, so oxygen-bound hemoglobin, versus carboxyhemoglobin, which is CO2-bound. So comes, someone comes out of fire, smoke inhalation, you put a pulse oximeter on, they're 100%, you go, oh, you're 100%. Oh, you're 100%. You know, so that 100% is probably CO. 
The other condition, let me get to you in a second. The other condition that, that'll give you a falsely high SpO2 is a patient in hemorrhagic shock. If you lose a lot of blood, let's say you lose half your blood volume, that's pretty bad, right? You lose half your blood volume into your gut or your chest or something, your SpO2 might be 100%, but your oxygen carrying capacity is the craps, is the shits, right? So your oxygen carrying capacity is terrible, right? Because you've only got 50% of your red blood cells, which means you've got 50% of your hemoglobin, which means you're gonna be hypoxic. So what do we do with someone in hemorrhagic shock who's got 100% SpO2? Give them oxygen. Give them supplemental oxygen. Because whatever oxygen doesn't get bound to hemoglobin gets dissolved in blood plasma. Right? Now, we don't honestly know how much benefit there is or if there's really truly benefit to giving um, hemorrhagic shock patients 100% O2. We don't know for sure. Uh, um, so, there, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a randomized control trial to look at you know, this group of hemorrhagic shock patients will get supplemental oxygen and this group will not, and we see if there's a difference in outcome. Uh, it may not be a study that anyone wants to do because it may be unethical. Aaron? Um, yeah, I was just gonna say, uh, so the SPO2 readout is literally just what percentage of the bone Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so it emits red and infrared light. It measures the absorbed light on the other side. And the absorbed light is determined by the shape of the hemoglobin. Uh, and the shape of the hemoglobin is determ determined by whether it's carrying oxygen or not carrying oxygen. And unfortunately, CO2 is, um, or CO rather, not CO2, but carbon monoxide, uh, looks just like oxygen to a pulse oximeter. Yeah, is it Brendan? Yeah. Yeah, like sickle cell anemia. Um, yeah, so uh, that's a super great question, um, and um, uh, they may their saturations may look fine as well. So you have to whether you're going to oxygenate that patient, you have to decide whether you're going to oxygenate them based on their clinical presentation, right? So sickle cell anemia, they they oftentimes uh, complain of pain because uh, the sickle cells just can't get through certain areas, and they get. Uh, uh, infarction at the tissue level and uh, so death of tissue at the t uh, death at the tissue level and so uh, those patients are a good candidate for supplemental oxygen despite whatever their SpO2s are yeah if you feel it's warranted most patients um, most patients you oxygenate if they don't need oxygen you're not likely to do any harm with some exceptions like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease should not just get uh, oxygen without um, giving it at a low dose and carefully titrating it upwards. Uh, titrating meaning adjusting the dose from low to, you know, working way up. But we'll talk about that in more detail later. So uh, I talked about hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen. It's a little like a magnet. I've never actually read it described that way, uh, but uh, that's how I like to think of it. So looks, look at the Bohr effect. Now, if you want to look up the Bohr effect in Google, um, knock yourself out, but you're gonna get a very complicated uh, description. This is the Reader's Digest version. So we talked about uh, pH, uh, we already know about that. We know that CO2 is part of the carbonic acid buffer equation. When you blow off CO2, you're basically blowing off acids. So therefore the blood shifts towards the alkaline side um, and um, CO2 diffuses 20 times more readily than O2. 
Uh, so at the tissue level, CO2 comes out of blood plasma or it comes out of, out of tissue into the blood that shifts the pH towards the acidic side and hemoglobin then um, loosens its grip on O2 so it can diffuse in, into the tissue in the opposite direction. So <clears throat> Bohr effect basically says if we think about Bohr effect on a breath by breath basis for normal healthy people. Um, so it really describes the body's ability to take and transport oxygen, release it at the tissue cycle. And when I say, when I say if you want to Google Bohr effect, you're probably going to run, run into the Krebs cycle. And I remember memorizing the Krebs cycle in my first year of college, and I haven't looked at it again since, and I never want to look at it again. <laughs> although, uh, although Krebs cycle is pretty interesting and worth a read if you're having trouble sleeping at night. But um, so according to Bohr, um, hemoglobin acts like a magnet, stronger in an alkaline environment, weaker in an acidic environment. And uh, so let's look at how, how it affects us in everyday uh, breathing. So um, at the lungs, we exhale CO2. That shifts the blood to the alkaline side and hemoglobin becomes a strong magnet. And then we take a breath in. Uh, because hemoglobin is a strong magnet, it attacks, attracts CO2 that we take in right away. Uh, and then at the tissue level, CO2 shifts uh, from the tissues to the blood. And that causes a shift in the pH towards the acidic side. And that weakens hemoglobin's grip on oxygen. So hemoglobin releases O2, it dissolves in blood plasma, and diffuses into the tissue. It's a beautiful system. It's incredible how it works, right? We breathe in and out, we breathe in and out. Amazing. But if we get anxious and we hyperventilate, what happens to our pH? Uh, think about it. What's down? Okay, so s if we hyperventilate, Lauren? Yeah, the pH increases. We blow off CO2, we're blowing off acids, and the pH increases. We become alkaline. Now, I talked earlier about alkalinity, and are there any benefits to alkalinity? Well, under certain circumstances, there are benefits to alkalinity. If you're profoundly acidotic, you probably need an alkaline solution. Um, if you've taken a drug overdose, uh, certain drug overdoses will benefit from alkalinizing the blood. So I'll give you an example. Um, um, when you, when someone's taken overdose of uh, tricyclics, which is an old antidepressant, um, there, uh, there are two reasons for giving sodium bicarbonate. <clears throat> when you alkalinize the blood, it increases the binding of drugs to plasma proteins. And um, once those plasma proteins go through the kidneys and the liver, uh, the drug gets metabolized and then gets eliminated through the kidneys. So in certain drug overdoses, a lot of drugs actually respond to this, they will give sodium bicarbonate to actually alkalinize the blood to increase uh, protein binding to drugs. Because most of the drugs that we take initially become bound to plasma proteins like albumin, and then they come off a protein and they interact with the receptor cells throughout your body. Right? So alkalinizing the patient with a drug overdose can be beneficial for eliminating the drug. This is the theory upon which you know, quacks say that we should be drinking alkaline solutions 
because it'll, it'll, it'll increase protein binding to uh, toxins in our blood and will eliminate those toxins. But it's complete and utter bullshit uh, because one, um, if you wanted to do that, you inject an alkaline solution directly into the blood, which I shouldn't even say because Gwyneth Paltrow might be listening to my podcast on Spotify and might now recommend people administer sodium bicarbonate to themselves. Uh, paramedic expert Rob Terrio said, you know, I can just see it now, and the skeptic's guide to the universe will come down on me and say, there's a quack teaching paramedics at Georgian College. Um, so alkalinizing the, the blood can have benefits under certain circumstances, uh, like uh, protein binding of certain toxins and drugs and so on and so forth. Or can have detrimental effects. So, uh, the clinical application, we've talked about this before, I'll just reiterate it. So, if you overzealously ventilate a patient, and it's easy to do because when you're bag valve mass ventilating patients, it's a it's a adrenaline charge situation, right? It's a stressful situation, and uh, we tend not to focus on what we're doing. And that's why the person who's in charge of breathing has got to be laser focused on their airway and on ventilating the patient. Um, I've precepted medics. I've run cardiac arrest many, many, many hundreds of times. I've watched my team members and, uh, and I've usually, you know, in a cardiac arrest, every team member knows what they're doing and there's not much I would have to say, but every once in a while I would have to say to someone, focus on the airway because they're talking to other people or they've got that glazed look in their eyes like, what am I gonna do for dinner tonight? I think I'm gonna be late. You know, they're drawing up a grocery list in their head. Uh, and that's when you have to cup them, cup them up the side of the head and say, focus, grasshopper. Jason, you know what that reference is? Oh, I yeah. I think everybody did. Yeah? How many of you have seen Kung Fu with David Carradine? Yeah, there's a couple of head nods. Oh, I, I, was, I wasn't even thinking of Kung Fu. Oh, what are you thinking of? I was thinking of um, Karate Kid. Oh, Karate Kid, right. That was a reference to Kung Fu. Oh, okay. You got to watch the old David Carradine Kung Fu shows. They were amazing. I liked The Legend Continues, but I oh, never yeah. really watched the original. Okay. Okay. Um, so when the patient, when the blood pH becomes persistently alkalotic, hemoglobin attracts O2, but doesn't release at the tissue level. We've already talked about this. And um, uh, blowing off too much CO can, CO2 can actually impair oxygenation at the tissue level. So another clinical, uh, some other clinical applications. So when you first encounter a patient who's hyperventilating, right? They're breathing deep and they're breathing fast. And do you remember what the definition of hyperventilation is? Is it breathing fast? No. Uh, it's over, yeah. So hyperventilation means a minute volume that exceeds metabolic demands, right? So you can hyperventilate at a breathing rate of 12. You can hypoventilate at a breathing rate of 40. So it's rate and volume, it's minute volume. And this is critically, critically, critically important because this is, a, this is a, the, uh, the path paramedics go down uh, clinically that's a serious mistake. 
so uh, sometimes, where you encounter a patient who's tachypneic, who's breathing fast, and you think, oh, they're hyperventilating. Mm, not necessarily. You have to look at their volume. If they're tachypneic, but their tidal volume is like, right? Then they're actually probably hypoventilating. If they're tachypneic and their tidal volume is, then sure, their minute volume, they don't make that squeaking sound, unfortunately, but uh, <laughs> uh, then, then their minute volume is probably excessive. But what you have to remember is people will breathe fast and deep to compensate for certain medical conditions. Here's a list, don't have to memorize them, but acute respiratory distress syndrome, we'll talk about that later, asthma, atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, cardiomyopathy, exacerbated COPD, costochondritis, which is an inflammatory process where your ribs attach to your sternum, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, hyperthyroidism, hypo, hyperventilation syndrome, metabolic acidosis, myocardial infarction, pleural effusion, panic disorders, bacterial pneumonia, pneumothorax, pulmonary embolism, smoke inhalation, CO poisoning, withdrawal syndromes, drug overdose, like salicylates. I think bare naked ladies need to write a song where they say this <laughs> stuff in rapid succession, you know. That would be amazing. It's been five breaths since you looked at me. I think you're hyperventilating, but you're wheezy. <laughs> so. That's on the podcast, right? <laughs> I know you're thinking, Rob, please stop. Don't, no more, no more. Can't do <laughs> All right, so, um, so if you encounter someone you think is having a panic attack, and sometimes people actually tell you I'm having a panic attack because they were diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And I can tell you, I've encountered a few patients, I know medics who've encountered a few patients who were diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and didn't have an anxiety disorder at all. They had an arrhythmia or they had some other condition that the medics were able to diagnose because they were the first to catch it. Remember that tachyarrhythmia I showed here? There was a lady, she was 44, I think, years old. And she had a 25-year history of quote-unquote anxiety, which I really hate, because it's a, it's a diagnosis of exclusion, right? So they go through a barrage of tests when they're having these so-called panic attacks, and if they can't find the cause, uh, they attribute it to anxiety disorder. And they give them benzodiazepines, sedatives. And so this lady was 44, I think, and she, had, she was on benzo. She told them she was having anxiety attacks. And um, in the back of the ambulance, she said, I, I feel another one coming on and they looked at the monitor, she was in a supraventricular tachycardia. That was her problem. She got off the benzos, she got onto a med that controlled her heart rate, and she was fine. Can you imagine 25 years thinking you have panic attacks and you're not having panic attacks, right? So this is why you and I have to be CSI, right? We go in with an open mind, we don't prejudge, and uh, we're looking for things. So if I get someone who's quote unquote having a panic attack, whether they tell me they're having a panic attack or they look like they're having a panic attack, number one, I don't worry about oxygen. Um, like if first I'm going to check their saturation and if they're already on oxygen, I'm fine. Leave them on oxygen. Oxygen is not going to do them any harm because what's the problem with hyperventilating? Is it oxygenation? <coughs> what's, is it, what's the problem with hyperventilating? Is it the, is it the PaO2 or the PACO2, right, it's the CO2, right? So oxygen doesn't make a difference one way or the other, it's the CO2. 
Um, we don't coach a meeting at first. I'm going to ask them some questions. I'm going to listen to their chest. I'm going to find out what their medical history is. And we never, ever, ever give someone a paper bag who's hyperventilating. Because we don't know if they're compensating for a solicited overdose or they got respiratory distress syndrome or they got, um, you know, diabetic ketoacidosis. We don't know what's going on with them. There have been fatalities associated with people who've received a paper bag to rebreathe their own CO2 uh, and then suddenly died. So we don't give. Uh, one of the things medics love to do, give you an oxygen mask with no oxygen. It's dangerous and potentially fatal. Never ever do that. Because believe me, if the patient dies, you're going to go to a coroner's inquest, you're going to be asked to explain why you gave an oxygen mask with no oxygen. Please explain that to us. Because the CO2 can build up in that and CO2 can build up too high. And if they're trying to blow off CO2 because they're compensating for something, you're going to kill them. Right? So be careful. We don't like to kill people in the field. We generally like to save them. Um, so killing them looks bad on your resume. So no excuse for not knowing, you know. Did you learn that in school? Oh, I don't think so. I don't remember. Well, it's not going to cut it, right? Because I have podcasts. I can prove that I taught it. So, <laughs> so you're screwed. <laughs> uh, Rob Terry, I understand you didn't teach the concept of hyperventilation as a compensatory Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, it's on Spotify. Check it out. Um, that's not why I record classes. But <laughs> so withholding oxygen from someone who's hyperventilating, has, there's no benefit and it may actually be harmful. Uh, making the patient rebreathe their own CO2 can be dangerous and even fatal. So no paper bags, no oxygen mask without, without O2. So there's a lot of information crammed into one lesson. This lesson is one of the most important. So review it, listen to the podcast, read your notes, ask questions. Uh, if you can get your head around the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve and the concept of the Bohr effect, you'll be up in the 10, 10%, 10 percentile range. Okay.